All right. Welcome to another episode of We Did a Podcast. It's going to be a great one. We have Elliot and Tony here, as well as uh, Liam and Hugh from Open ANX. So, uh, hey, hey there, Hugh. Hey there, Liam. Hey, guys. So we're really excited to, to have them on because they're working on something very interesting and they just completed a, a fairly large milestone, I would say. Yeah. What really would be exciting. that milestone, guys? <laughs> really, really exciting news. And I guess you, you heard it here first, actually. Uh, we, we just sent the tweet out a few seconds ago and that's uh, we hit our funding milestone of $18 million US dollars and uh, 50,000 Ethereum. So uh We've announced uh, the, the sale closes in 24 hours, so uh, we're so, so pleased to have made it and um, a huge show of uh, community support. Uh, we we could, couldn't have uh, asked for more, honestly. Yeah, this is, this is exclusive. There you yes. go, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Cue the cheesy sound effects. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, no, thanks for the opportunity to chat. Uh, really like to uh, you know, tell everyone about our project. Uh, what would yeah, you like to know? Uh, yeah. Can you give us a give the listeners like a high level overview of what Open Annex is hmm. um, looking to do? Sure. So uh, I, I say I probably I'll start the conversation with a tiny bit of background because uh, I guess the team uh, we're not strangers to digital currencies and exchange exchange trading and operation. Uh, the team that, that kicks this off um, was the team behind ANX International. So we're a very international company, but we've got, we've got 100 staff, uh, and we've been running ANX Pro uh, for four years or so, and we've got a number of other businesses wow. as well. Uh, so, so, you know, we're not, we're not really un- a newcomer. Very unusual, yeah. Hugh. Yeah. That's very unusual for the space, and that's great. Yeah, um, I was actually, we were, we were all at consensus uh, in the end of May. And uh, normally what you see when you, you're talking about a token sales, you see a bunch of sort of starry-eyed young guys. There's usually one guy who's on the development side and there's the other guy on the sales side. And they come up and they go, we've got this amazing idea, let's talk about our deck. And then you're like, okay, so we're, like, where are you in the process? And they're like, well, we've got a deck. <laughs> like they don't have any developers. We have a white paper. Yeah. <laughs> we're halfway there. Yeah. Well, not even – sometimes they still need a little bit of help with a white paper. You know, they've got a pitch deck. Um, so the, the development side and the actual business side is something that's often like quite uh, immature, I guess is probably the word, um, in terms of the sales. So we're obviously coming at it from a slightly different angle. And uh, so, yeah, I have to say that I'm not, I'm not uh, overly critical uh, of, of small teams doing big projects because it's where a lot of the innovation comes from. And so uh, I wouldn't go on record and saying I'm too critical of that. Uh, some some of the valuations I, I perhaps are a little bit out of control. But 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 <laughs> yep. so so uh, political and kind of you to say that. <laughs> but you can't you can't deny that an amazing amount of innovation has come out of the public blockchain mm-hmm. space and in all the private you know the institutional the banks they're always copying the public space mm-hmm. and how much has and how much has come out of you know ethereum itself it was a, it was a token sale and yet it's, it's leading the world and, it, and, and it's, it's it's done so much to progress you know the industry so um, you can't be too critical you know you can't be too critical but certainly some of the some of the valuations and uh, and are, are out of control uh, and I guess there's probably also people taking a lot of legal risks they shouldn't 
right, and, yeah. and we weren't willing to do that. So, well, and that's before. where, so before we go on to the next chapter, I, I would like to know a little bit about, uh, I would like to know a little bit more about how you guys are viewing, you know, legal jurisdictions, right. you know, et cetera. But before we go, before we go and tackle that, mm. what would be the quick, you know, high level summary of the problem that you guys experienced or saw and what is the open and right. open annex, you know, solution? Yeah, so so I had discussed already that um you know we've been running uh, a centralized exchange for some time, uh, so, and certainly in Asia, but pretty much most of the world, we've got a very trusted brand. We've never been hacked. We've never lost any customers' funds, and that's and that and that's um quite a challenging and exhausting task. Um, so we're an experienced operator in the field, but there has been a lot of cases where there has been customer losses. So of course you know MT Gox. Um, huge losses more recently, Bitfinex, and, and really 95% centralized exchanges have had a loss of customer funds in some fashion. Now, typically that loss is not cash. If some exchange gets hacked, it's very hard for hackers to get in there and steal fiat monies. If they do a swift wire somewhere, then the bank accounts can get frozen. It's not likely to be lost. But what is always lost is the cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, Ethereum—they're lost, and they're very hard to very hard to call back. Uh, and it's uh, so it's, you know it's a huge problem in the space. Now, if you think about why this is happening, well, well, a centralized exchange as an operator, if someone comes in to buy Ether, and someone else has got cash, and they're doing a trade, we need to make 100% sure that both customers can be settled. Got, we've got to have control of the crypto and the cash. And then when a trade happens, make sure that both of the counterparties, the two customers, both get their funds. And so the way centralized exchanges work is they hold both your crypto and your cash, and they make sure the settlement happens. But the problem with that is they're holding your crypto, they're holding your keys. And as every, right. veter every veteran in the industry says, don't let someone else hold your keys or you can't really consider it yours. If something goes wrong, you're going to lose them. So, so that's kind of a bit of context. And, and, I, and I can say as an exchange operator, um, there's no benefit to us in holding people's crypto assets. If you're a very public company, right. everyone knows who you are, you've got a good reputation, you've got a career, you know, if you, if you fit into that category of an exchange operator, it's only risk, there's only downside. If, if, I, if I'm holding someone's crypto and I exactly. somehow do get hacked, then it's only downside for me. I've got brand damage, career damage, everyone will hate me basically. There's nothing good about it, we don't like holding it. Um, some some exchanges in the past have tried to express that by charging customers fee to hold it. Because a lot of people come, they'll stick their crypto in the exchange, and then they're just too busy to take it out. And so the exchange so how, operator. So, how, so Hugh, ahead. let me pause you right there. I yeah, know we're sure. still in the we're still really yeah, sure, into sure. the problem yeah. uh, phase of this. But um, so 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 does that leave the decentralized exchange like right. an open annex as as essentially holding the order book, but not correct. The, so basically, you're just uh, maintaining the order book and helping to and, make a market by connecting uh, and custody of the funds. So, uh, so now, fortunately, we've got decentralized exchange technology starting to make some progress, uh, and and everyone prefers decentralized exchange for the reason that you don't have to relinquish custody of your funds to do a trade. You yeah, can go and trade on, you know, that's and that's huge. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, you know, if you jump in on Telegram, you're on any of the big channels like uh, Whalepool or CoinFarm or anything, any of those channels, what you actually see pretty commonly is everyone recognizes that decentralized is pretty much the future. 
But then current expressions of decentralized exchanges have a couple of problems, and uh, Hugh will probably drill down on that. But obviously, one is liquidity. Uh, one is one is is the fiat question. You know, most guy most uh, decentralized exchanges work very well if you've got Bitcoin and I've got crypto, but uh, they don't really answer the cash question. And if we're looking at sort of mass adoption and increasing the market and getting more people involved, we have to answer the cash question and we have to answer the liquidity question. And, that, and that's exactly right. And that, and that's why um, and that and that pretty much is is OpenANX in a nutshell. It's bringing it's it's bringing the advantages of exchange, the ability to have compliance and banking relationships and handle cash and fiat, and and mixing that with the the um, you know the beauty of decentralized exchanges where customers don't have to give up their private keys and so they can trade in a, in a much more riskless manner. Uh, and that that's what OpenANX does. Uh, it lets you trade in a marketplace without having to have someone hold your private keys. Uh, now there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot under the hood that goes beneath that, and that, and that's, and we heard, um, you know, we heard Liam starting to talk about some of those things. Um, yeah, can you can you talk about? Can you explain a little bit about how the OAX tokens are going to be used on the platform? Okay, so the tokens, like how that all works yes. together. Right. So most most token sales they kind of try and force the token on as trading fees or something like that which which we haven't done so so if if it's okay I, I might get to that a little bit down 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 the road and and first talk okay. a little bit, bit more about the sure. project um so so we've got decentralized exchanges that can do crypto only and we've got uh, the likes of 0x and state channels which allow you to do a higher volume of trading without being restricted by gas and the speed of the underlying blockchain. Mm -hmm. So we've got these, you know, we've got the right technology pieces coming coming together. Um, and so what, how we've structured OpenANX is is to say that the role of a centralized exchange needs to change now. They should still be managing banking, doing KYC, and all the things they have to do to allow the public to interact. But they should they should be taking the cash. They should be digitizing the cash and issuing that onto a blockchain as an ERC20 token. So, so for ANX, as an example, ANX takes US dollars. We tokenize um, your ANX US dollars onto, onto, the, onto, onto the blockchain as an ERC20 token. Uh, and now, and then, then we allow the trading, the trading to happen, the decentralized exchanges based on that token. Uh, now, on top of that, so I guess there's a few things. People think, um, people ask us, are we trying to peg? Are these currencies somehow pegged to dollars? Or, you know, um, the answer is it behaves the same as it does now with fiat. When you send your money into an exchange, you expect that they've got segregated accounts. You expect that they're not oper operating in a, in a fractional reserve um, manner. And that needs to continue, in fact. And, and also, we expect that regulations, now, now that uh, digital currencies are becoming so well legitimized, particularly in Japan, but the rest of the world is following, you can expect that the fiat thing will actually be addressed by traditional, uh, traditional compliance and regs. Now, for example, if you go and trade foreign exchange, you open an account with a broker. That broker, actually, actually in most jurisdictions, that broker has what's called a letter of client monies. It requires them to segregate customer funds and have enough operating capital to actually be in that sort of a responsible position in the market. 
Yeah. And can, I, can I just jump in ahead. there with you? You know, like this is something that quite often comes up when we talk to people about this, about the project, is when you deal with, you know, a, a centralized exchange, you take your 10,000 US dollars and you go and you want to buy some Bitcoin, you open your account. Uh, after they've received the money, they credit your account with 10,000 USD. What really needs to sort of be understood is, is what we are talking about there is essentially an IOU. Right, so right. those guys are saying that there's ten thousand dollars in your account, but that that ten thousand dollars you hope is sitting in some sort of best practice segregated account, and that's being held. And once you exchange it for Bitcoin, that that Bitcoin's being held. But you know, there's this is sort of one of the issues that we we see with the centralized exchange model is is there is no real guarantee of that. You know, there's and, been yeah, sorry. And and Liam to to jump in there. So is that Hugh? Did I say that uh, you know your concern was that they may be using techniques similar to fractional reserve banking, because that would of course be the case, right? If they were, they were essentially crediting more us dollars than they actually had. Exactly. Um, and currently the whole market is unregulated. So operators may be doing that. We don't know. Which is very, very terrifying. Right. Well, there's some very prominent, uh, prominent tokens such as, you know, perhaps we can say tether, you know, which uh, it's it's not clear, it's not regulated as far as I'm aware, it's not regulated. But I'm, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief it is coming because it's being, um, foreign exchange is very similar and it is regulated and you do know that they've got legal requirements as a right. foreign exchange broker to hold customer funds separately and properly. So I do feel that's coming for centralized exchanges for fiat, but I don't think it's still going to solve the crypto problem. Ultimately, when it comes to crypto, we should hold our own keys. I mean, it's, it's hard to debate that that fact. And decentralized so, exchanges so let you do I'm that. I'm trying to, you know, on yeah. on our, uh, you know, on we did a podcast. We have myself, Tony, and we have Elliot, and Elliot is more of the technical brain, and I'm more of the, you know, business simplified, you know, uh, communicative brain. Let's just say. So I'm trying to simplify what you're doing because it's very complicated, obviously. And I'm and what I'm what I really hear like. What it sounds like I'm hearing is that you see the big risk in having operated a centralized exchange that that doesn't really add value to you as an exchange by being uh, assuming the risk on all of this uh, of, of essentially client money. And if you could instead just focus on being the exchange and not bearing that risk, that's what has borne the uh, the seed, you know, the initial seed that's turned into OpenANX. Is that correct? Correct, but I'd go a little bit further and I'd also say a key part of the exchange is the matching. You, you are correct, but maybe I, I feel exchanges should do even less than that. So when you do a trade, your trade goes into a matching engine, an order book. Um, and you've got all of the exchanges all over the world. They're all running their they're all running their own technology. It's closed source. You can't access the data. So everyone's running their own opaque order books. You don't know if there's fair rules in there. Does someone get to jump the queue? You don't know. They're closed source. And you can't get at the data. And there's no need for that anymore. So actually, the the matching should also be done in open source, open data, open technology. Yeah. And so instead of having a thousand exchanges all maintaining their own 24 by 7 closed source matching engines, actually, people should be trading on blockchain related open technology. 
Yeah, and just on that, I mean, without naming names, there's there's some pretty famous exchanges who, when there's a very big price fluctuation in, say, Ethereum or Bitcoin, who have a, an annoying habit of sort of dropping off for a little while, and um, that you does know, it start with a C uh, or, or, a, or a G? Because <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote down that name before you before you spoke. Yeah, yeah so I mean, it, we're obviously all aware of situations like that. Um, I don't want to point any fingers, but obviously, you know, in that situation, there's no real understanding of why that's the case. And so, what we're looking at is uh, over a long period of time open source software has been proven to be more effective. You know, if you've got a community of engaged people who are looking at it and coders and, you know, you might obviously find some issues and bugs that nothing's perfect. But over time, those prove to be a, a better, a better, a best practice, I guess. I'm yeah, Sure. And, and it sounds like to go back to it, the, mm. the real, um, like the foundation of all of this is that, mm. hey, when, when you're not dealing with the client money, but you're instead just dealing with the framework that enables them, you know, to get their value proposition of the exchange, yeah. then it allows you to to do that, right? Because it seems like exactly. if, if you were holding all of the client money, doing this in an open sourced way, I mean, come on, it's probably not possible, right? So certain things, uh, when it comes to the old school, I, I call it legacy financial markets. When it comes to the legacy financial markets, which is fiat and banking, um, Unfortunately, you have to work in those systems, you know, to, to operate an exchange at, at scale, you need to do KYC, you need to have a strong banking relationship. So, you, so, so the legacy, like an, an exchange has to keep focusing on the legacy financial framework. And that's what we, that's what we think centralized exchanges should, should merge into. They should be asset gateways. They should be local, focusing all their energies on local language, local customer support, local regulations, local banking relationships. They should not be running the matching engine and they shouldn't be holding people's private keys and that's that you know that's what we're trying to do so the centralizing and and i can to give you a feel for this because we've got real world numbers as a business we've got 100 staff maybe 80 percent of our um, cost and resources is on the exchange matching technology and on securing wallets and wallet integration uh, if if we could instead focus 100 percent of our of our revenues on of sorry of our um you know, bottom line on customer support and banking and compliance and we didn't have to run our own matching engine and we didn't have to secure all those wallets you know we could be we could be actually more profitable and we could do a much better job of serving our market right. now if all the centralized exchanges were able to do this globally uh, and and then people are trading on the blockchain or in state channels attached to the blockchain. It's open market. The the maintenance of that is is open source, it's much more like Linux, right. you know. So, than... so you know, you've just cre you've just achieved this major milestone, and once again, really, you know, hats off to you guys, and you know, really excited for you. So, what what is next? You know, what's mm. you know, you obviously you should do some celebrating, you know, uh, tonight if you haven't already. Um, of course, but when you, you know, get up the next morning and I guess you're, you're already ahead of us from the time zones, you maybe have already gotten up, <laughs> but what do you go into the office and what do you set your eyes on next? What's the next milestone for you? We've got three pillars of execution, uh, in, in our plan. Um, now the first one, the first one is the technology itself. Um, and we've already got some quite strong names in, in the ecosystem, um, as part of our team. 
And uh, you know, some of the some of the top Ethereum Reddits are mentioning some of these guys like Bok by name. They're very strong. So we've got a strong technical team, but we want to grow that. So we're also engaged to some of the typical names uh, to to collaborate, particularly on the state channel work. Uh, that said, one pillar is technology. So we've got to keep driving out the technology, porting over um, ANX IP and technology, and um, and and finishing the product. But that's just one pillar. The other pillar is ecosystem engagement and. Uh, um, our plan here is to um, we've put together a roadmap to basically go and visit every every exchange on the planet um, and and onboard everyone to come to come come and actually play play a role and support being an asset gateway for OpenANX. And this it doesn't it doesn't sound very attractive for the top three or four exchanges. These guys they're very busy. And they've got a lot of liquidity, and and the, the reports you hear is they're so successful they've stopped adding coins or doing anything else. They're just trying to handle the scale. Right. And so you now for the top three or four exchanges, it's not going to be as attractive for now. But but there's 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 probably somewhere between 500 to 1,000 other exchanges in the world who've never quite made it. They've never got those Bitfinex levels of liquidity. And what we haven't talked about yet is, but the way we've structured things is actually all the gateways can share liquidity. And what that means is when, you, when you're one of these smaller exchanges, you're just not competitive because you haven't got enough liquidity. People can't come onto your exchange and get a good got fill it. at a good price. If you join up and open ANX, you actually get to share everyone's liquidity. Okay, yeah. got it. So so it's really not that you're just built. So this is actually very, this, this makes complete sense. You're really the plumbing for the long tail of all these exchanges, right? And building a salt, like a basically a single protocol across all of them, right? Exactly right. Exactly yeah, this right. makes complete sense now. And then the other, the other part of that is obviously uh, that Hughes talked uh, in, about the centralized exchanges, but obviously the existing decentralized platforms who we've already sort of mentioned obviously have that question around uh, fiat or they have a liquidity issue. There's no reason why those guys can't plug in as well. Like ultimately right. for them, they can solve that, that question for them. Yeah, so if I operate, and this goes back to, Hugh, what you were saying earlier about believing in the power of the localization of these different exchanges and the power of focus, essentially. Yes. So, you know, in your in your you know view of the world, you know, one year, three years, four years down the road, you know, if you have a, you have an exchange in, I don't know, Nigeria and an exchange in, you know, a lot, you know, well, whatever, I don't know, you know, the opposite side of the, the world, Russia. Yes. And, uh, you know, you're a, you're a, you know, not top three player, but maybe a five, six or, you know, number 90 and you have, you know, 20 buyers and you don't have the sellers though, but you know, another person has the 20 sellers, but they don't have the buyers through open ANX. Boom. You connect the two probably take some sort of small fee, but everyone's happier Correct. because there's actually a deal done. Correct. Exactly right. Um, exactly right. Now there's one more, one more thing I need to introduce. So uh, here, and uh, but actually, Liam made a point, and that was the other decentralized exchanges. You know, th this is uh, there's a lot of synergy here, and, and and initially people were like, oh, another decentralized exchange project. But actually, we won't build our own decentralized exchange technology until we have to. Now we already spent some time with the ZeroX guys, and you know, working with that team to do the ZeroX implementation. We also intend to um, do a, do a state channel implementation as well. Um, so we will plug into the decentralized exchanges where the technology is fit for purpose. Uh, they might not always be fit for purpose, however. Uh, so because so what, what we do, uh, we've done this for years in ANX Pro, but we need to do this here as well, and that's do um, uh, multi-dimensional order books. And this is a bit more of a technical concept, but 
in a traditional order book, if you think about it, you've just got two asset classes. You might have, you know, Ether and US dollars, just two asset classes, and that's how the order book right. works. Um, with a multi-dimensional order book, you actually have multiple. So in the case of ANX Pro, we've got Japanese yen, US dollar, British pounds, euro, as well as Ether. Okay, so this... Well, yeah, and so it's a similar... It's very similar to like... And I, I, this is my other name I have on my on my pad here, which is a Bancor. So it's similar, very similar, right? Obviously a different solution, but same problem, right? I think they're, I think they're very similar. Um, they, they, they've, they've got some synergies. I don't see the, the concept of, um, of fiat and banking compliance and credit risk necessarily high on their agenda. And, and I think that's why for all of the slightly more crypto-focused projects, we're, we're, we're very strong synergy. So let, so let me talk about the third pillar in a minute. But I, but I had just touched on the need. We, we do need quite specific technology. And if we can't enhance the state channel work, we might have to build some. But I prefer to, um, I prefer to support the other projects. Um, that said, we may need to enhance or, or build for the state channel stuff. The, now, the other one is um, credit risk trading. I want to go back actually a couple of years now and, and talk about uh, Mt. Gox. So when Mt. Gox uh, imploded, you could not withdraw your Bitcoins. But what you could do is you could move your Mt. Gox Bitcoins internally from account to account. You know, so, so, so I could send my Bitcoins from my account in Mt. Gox to Liam's account in Mt. Gox. Now, what happened is a very uh, enterprising gentleman set up Bitcoin Builder. What he said is, okay, I'm setting up a market, a secondary market for Mt. Gox coins. Now, how this works is, if I've got coins on Gox, I can list them for sale on this website. Other people can send in their, their real-world Bitcoins, and then they can be traded. And this, this actually is, is a credit risk market. It was very popular. And it allowed people who had a view that Mt. Gox would come good, then it allowed them to have a view and go and buy up these cheap Gox, Gox coins. And people who thought they would never get their money back they were selling the amount of Gox coins at a you know 30% discount to get real Bitcoins. And so this was a credit risk market, very popular. Um, it was only there for a little while until the whole thing exploded. But it's our view that this capability should be there all the time. This is a credit risk market. In traditional financial markets, you've always got credit risk. And so if, you've, if you work in, a, in an investment bank and you've got trading desks, one, bank, one desk will be working, will be trading on market risk, the price of the, the asset going up and down in value. The other desk will be working on credit risk, all counterparties are trading with, how safe are they with your assets, how likely are you to get your money back. And so every, every large deal has got a, got a piece of credit, some credit risk pricing in there and some market risk pricing. And then the profit and loss is broken down along that fa in that fashion. It's our view that you have to have this in any, any functional market has to have an ability to trade credit risk. And very, this very fascinating. And um, the easiest way to summarize this point is if I was going to give you two million pounds and you had a choice, you could take it in a bag filled with US dollars or a bag filled with Nigerian Naira, but they both essentially had the same value. Which one would you take? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The dollar. Yeah, of course. So, uh, so. No, it's a, that's a really great point because what you're basically saying is it's, well, I mean, this is actually the words coming out of my mouth are going to be very obvious, but you're essentially uh, putting a value on the person who's who's giving you the uh, their word, right? Which right. it makes perfect sense because that is credit risk. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And so, so it's like if someone says, "I'm going to give you," someone's going to the market and saying, "I'll pay 330 bucks, you know, for one ether," and it's trading at that. Another person says, "Well, I'll go. I'll pay 500," but well, hey, but that's Joe Schmo. You know, he's got a hundred bucks to his name. 
how is he going to pay that? <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and so that's why if ANX as a gateway is issuing a, a US dollar token, that it's not fungible with, um, you know, with a, let's call it Acme Exchange US dollar token. Actually, there's different credit risk profiles there. Uh, there's one, do they have the funds? Are they operating in a legal and sound manner? Two, there's also sovereign risk. You know, are they in a jurisdiction where perhaps they're going to get shut down through no fault of the operator? There's all these different risks which, which actually are part of the counterparty credit risk. And so in our view, ANX US dollar tokens need to be able to be traded. And so let's say Acme Exchange, let's, let's call them a big Taiwanese exchange. If these guys issue their own US dollar tokens, you need, you need the ability to have a market and trade those tokens against each other. And that allows the market to express credit risk. And it also allows us to join together all of the order books and do the liquidity aggregation that I was discussing through this um, multidimensional order book matching. So, yeah, I get it. So really, it's almost like what you're really building is like an exchange of exchanges, like the order book of order books. A little bit, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, is, so, that an, is that an accurate way to describe it? I mean, uh, obviously, yeah. that doesn't do justice probably to all of the other, you know. We, we did actually, the exchange of exchanges was something we discussed in the, the early iterations of our, of our, you know, when we're coming up with taglines and kind of ways to our elevator pitch for it. So it definitely works in a, in a regard. I, I preferred what you said earlier about, like, infrastructure. You know, the market right. is maturing based on volume and value. And, uh, but if you look at other markets that mature, uh, as they mature, the infrastructure sort of moves along at the same speed. You know, the U.S. built right. highways when there was a certain number of cars. But what happened in crypto is we've gone like 10x, 60x, whatever the currency is you're looking at. But essentially, the infrastructure is still dealing. It's still essentially the same. The centralized model exactly. is very, very similar. You know, the security has moved forward a little bit, but the actual infrastructure and the system whereby that works uh, has not matured. Yeah, clearly needs to be open source. Um, so now, just to round this out, so we, I guess we talked about building up critical level of ecosystem, talked about the technology as well. Um, with, with the ecosystem, I think there's a slight advantage. We can we can push the boundaries a bit faster because we've got a business already with a good brand and customers that, that we've committed to migrating on as a gateway, and that, be, that being ANX Pro. Um, but, but now, last but not least, um, legals. You know, it's... There's, there's, a, there's a strong desire, I guess, in the community to have no KYC and have no jurisdictions and no regulators. Um, and, in, you know, in the long term, that's fine. But in the short term, if you're trading with someone who's not, you know, who's not complying with their local regulations or they're breaking laws, they're a huge credit risk. If, you're, if you've right. got your money with an exchange and they get shut down for breaking the law, it's very hard to get that back. So regardless of your philosophical position, the, the practical position is you do need operators who are acting legally, right? Right, and, yeah. and do you see that when you – so when you look at, at the landscape, for example, in the United States, do you see that uh, very rampant? Like do, do, you, do your kind of uh, alarm – you know, without saying anybody individually, yeah. do your kind of like internal you know, alarm bells start going off? Uh, ab- absolutely, because the amount of the, – the conservative approach we've taken over the years to stay alive and not get in trouble – um, so, so we, we've definitely been super careful in doing everything we think is legal and there's definitely operators in both exchange services, but also in the, also in the ICO space that, um, you'd have to be you know, very hesitant about, are they, are they legal? Um, so, but, but so moving on from this, um, for this, for this ecosystem to flourish, um, participants need to understand their legal risk. 
they need to know that they're not running afoul of FinCEN or they need to know what they can and can't do as, as, as a gateway operator and as a user of OpenANX um, and, and as someone providing services to OpenANX. So all these market participants need some, need, need some, you know, some surety, some knowledge. And so for us, the, uh, the third and final and, and, and um, very important um, piece of the puzzle here is, is, is legals. And so a third pillar for us is, um, is, is having legal teams produce position papers and what it means to be a gateway, what it means to be a user, what it means, uh, what it means to, to provide services to this ecosystem. Um, and that's, that's quite important. It's not quite the same as writing a legal opinion for one particular business or project, which of course we had to do for this project, but it's more about providing uh, a leg up. So, we, so it provides um, a lot of founding material and position papers that have been well socialized as, as a starting point for anyone who right. wants and to so, engage. And Hugh and Liam, is it, is it your within your vision that you will use that as a major source of strength in, in basically – uh, helping to, um, you know, further enhance your partners, and basically, will you share that strength with them? Is that your vision, or absolutely? It's, it's it should be. It's basically open source. It's like um, it's like an wow. academic research paper. It's the further the knowledge of mankind, you know. So this is this is production of of position papers to help reduce the legal costs of people participating. Got it. Participating in this ecosystem, so absolutely. And one last thing is we haven't talked about. There's the there's the foundation and the governance and the dispute resolution. And so here we need to be here. We've got a lot of work because the foundation, um, which is of course a non-profit um, with the charter to further this platform, the foundation um, should be developing the software and, and and furthering the ecosystem for OpenANX. But the foundation can't be an exchange operator itself. It should be open and we want exchange operators to you know to participate and use the platform so this is quite a distinction so there's a lot of there's a lot of work to set that up properly and and we also as part of that we want yeah, to do you have any plans for that um I mean, anx pro or anx will so i guess there's two different businesses one there's the non-profit which 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 um conducted the, the token sale and uh it's and then there's separately to that, there's a commercial business, which is ANX, um, which is self-funded. And we've committed, as when I say we, we is ANX, we've committed to being one of those gateways. So, okay. two, so, so yes, ANX Pro, the commercial business, will um, gain as many people as possible to be gateways and be one ourselves as well. Okay, got it. Now, um, so I, I very much understand your vision. I understand the value add. I understand the problem. You know, and the theory seems incredibly sound. And and like Liam had said, you know, basically infrastructure for all of these exchanges. You know, increased liquidity. Let's let's help there be more traffic, more users through the network. And you know, open index is a big part of doing that. But what are the economics behind? You know, right. um, what are the economics behind the the token? And right. what are the economics right. exactly? So if you could just you know without. You know, obviously, this goes back to from you know responsible uh, legal standpoint. Is like obviously, you know, we don't want to, you know, it's it's unclear, you know, how those tokens are treated, and you know, mm. want to avoid, I guess, certain maybe forward-looking statements if that's how you structure. It. I'm not sure how exactly you structured it, but you know, right. speaking no, no, in generalities. No, no, let, let me talk about that. So, um, we wanted to structure the ecosystem like a club. I'm not sure if anyone's ever joined a sporting club, but a, but a sporting club, um, it, it typically, it costs to, to buy a membership. 
And then once you've got a membership, you get access to the community, to the ecosystem in the community and all the resources of the club. Um, that's, how we, that's, that's how we wanted to structure this and such so that um, OAX tokens are used to purchase memberships and there's different types of memberships. Interesting. Um, we thought, and, we thought about, by the way, uh, mm. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we have a, a, a project that we're working on and we came to the same conclusion is basically a membership club. It's funny. Oh, well, that's, yeah. Well, there you go. So we, are we you also doing a, are you also doing like a rebate in the form of almost like a dividend? The same, same. Uh, we're not doing a rebate. You know, we've, got too much legal counsel uh, to do anything you know that uh, could even remotely resemble a security so we're not doing right. a rebate what we do uh, when as as a user subs subscribes with their OAX tokens to get one of these types of memberships those tokens get destroyed uh, so the, so, the, so the supply of tokens will actually go down uh, there is uh, well, so the memberships are transferable, um, but the tokens get destroyed. The tokens are divisible to 18 decimal places. And we, and we think the costs of the different types of memberships will change over time. Uh, and we also expect that the voting token holders will actually influence the costs of the club membership, which is just how club works right now. Uh, so it's a little bit like proof of stake in the sense that the community is incentivized to, to, to be good actors for, for their own benefit. Yeah. So and what then, do, what do the memberships look like? Uh, so we, first of all, we want access to the platform to be almost free. Just you, you, you could easily say, well, a user will never use it if they have to pay, but that's not quite true. Uh, when during times of market euphoria in cryptocurrencies, people will actually pay whatever they can to get access to an exchange. So we um, we at one stage we had so much KYC requests coming in that we started charging people um, a premium fee to have their KYC processed the same day, and it didn't it barely even slowed down. So when the market really wants to get access to to a platform, they will pay, but it needs to be almost free. And we, we like the idea of the Big Mac index. Uh, this, this is this is not set in stone yet, but we like the idea of linking the cost of a membership to the Big Mac index. So around the world globally, it's pretty affordable for just a basic user membership. Uh, but then for a voting membership who actually votes. On, on the platform governance. Um, we want that to be a higher fee. And the um, gateway memberships. So, so actually the ability to, to issue your tokens and be a gateway. We want obviously a much higher fee for that. And so every time one of these memberships is redeemed, the tokens get destroyed. Uh, on top of that, um, we haven't talked about collateral yet. This is such a complicated <laughs> project, but uh, we need to touch on collateral. So we want we want the gateways to actually pledge Ether into the smart contracts as some degree of collateral when, when they're issuing tokens. So for example, the ANX gateway will put up some amount of Ether. Let's imagine hypothetically a you know, million dollars worth of, worth of Ether. That's locked and that's got, it's got some time locks around it. And we also um, include in our terms and conditions agreements to participate in dispute resolution, most likely using independent arbitration courts. So then when users of the ANX gateway have a dispute, perhaps they say, I sent funds, I never got my tokens, or they say I withdrew the tokens, I never received the funds. Then there's, um, then there's a body set up to actually handle dispute resolution and facilitate that to go through an independent arbitration court. And the dispute resolution process would require the gateways to, to agree that that collateral that's been posted is available 
um, for for um, to make good any uh, you know successful plans. It's like a, it's almost like a better version of PayPal. <laughs> right, right. And I yeah. hope I really hope that you guys do a better version than PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I'll, just going to jump in and uh, I, I fill in a few of the small details uh, mm. around what Hugh's saying. So with the memberships, we we sort of talk through that very quickly. I'll just go back. So you know, obviously, as Hugh said. People who come onto the platform, we want to expand. Our philosophy is really that we're open to everyone. So uh, that initial membership, like a participant membership, is like the Big Mac Index. Then obviously there's a step up to a voting member who then gets a say on, on, on the future direction of the platform. Then there's a sort of a asset gateway. And then there's sort of these ancillary services, you know, which could be KYC service providers or could be someone who gives legal advice or could be a market data participant who's providing, you know, pricing. Uh, you know, a Smith and Crown or Coinbase or Coindesk, any of these guys that have sort of feeds that come through that compare pricing, they would probably be a data provider. Um, obviously, getting in early if you become the sole data provider is very, very good. So that's obviously a different type of license than Asset Gateway. So we are sort of looking at a tiered or gradiated system of these memberships. Um, that's the first part. And then on the, the collateral part, uh, this sort of ties back into credit risk. You know, obviously, we spent a bit of time on that. But when you're, you're talking about, say, Acme Gateway, you know, let's say uh, it's important to realize that we're not really – we're giving advice on what we think is best practice, but we're really – it's up to a gateway to, to, to look at its business model and, and consider what, what is the best approach for it. But let's say in the case of uh, ANX as a gateway, just as a hypothetical, they post 100% collateral. So as Hugh said, they put a million dollars of Ethereum. They never issue more than a million dollars worth of USD tokens. So from a user point of view, you can look at that with your when you're evaluating credit risk and you can say, okay, well, if I buy Bitcoin through ANX, if there is an issue and I and they get hacked at the moment, I'm doing the transfer. I, I can still I have a recourse to get an access to, to the equivalent value that I lost from their smart con, from their smart contract collateral. If because they're collateralized to 100%, potentially I get 100% back and it shouldn't be an issue. Um, then Acme Gateway, they might have a different business model. Their business model might be very very cutthroat pricing. Um, it's a volume business, so they might only post 25% collateral. So in that case, you look at the price of Bitcoin, ANX might choose to charge, you know, $2,900 and, and Acme might charge $2,750. So as a user, it's still the choice is yours, right? You, you can choose oh, the low that's risk. The, that's the, the risk low. transparency. Yes, yeah, so exactly. you, choose, you, choose the, you choose the ANX and you go, okay, it's low risk, but it's high cost. I'm essentially offsetting my risk with cost. Uh, or I can choose Acme and I get a cheaper rate on my Bitcoin. You know, if I'm a trader and those $25, $30, those transactions, multiple transactions with small gains, but I do many of them a day, if that's, my, if that's the way I make money, then obviously price is a huge issue for me. But I can now transparently evaluate the risk inherent in those years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it really, it really does make a lot. It makes a lot of sense between you know, uh, the long tail of exchanges and more liquidity across them, the credit risk, the, I mean, it makes, it tackles a lot. And that's why I understand now, um, you know, from the beginning of, of this episode, as we were just talking and trying to simplify it, you know, it is difficult to just simplify it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for, um, for the thing that resonates most with, with the broadest community, I guess the lowest common denominator is you should hold, hold your own private keys. And that's and, and that's for us. That's what it boils down to. We want to allow people to continue holding their own private keys even while they're, while they're trading. But there's obviously there's a lot of complicated mechanics that go on beneath that. But ultimately, that's what it's all about. 
Perfect. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think education with that is going to be a big thing too because a lot of people that I know who are in the crypto trading space don't really understand how it works. Like mm. they go to Coinbase, they have their wallet. They don't necessarily know that they don't have their private keys. They don't really understand the risks of it all. And they don't really learn the risks until something bad happens, such as something like Mt. Gox. Yeah. I think we have to see a lot more hardware devices like Trezor and Ledger. These, you know, they, these sort of projects are the thing that makes it um, take takes that education bit out of it. As long as they know how to use their Trezor, their private keys actually never hit the never hit the internet, and they're, they're kind of safe. I think there's a lot of synergy here with um, more and more hardware projects. I don't think we've seen enough yet, but That's I awesome. completely agree. Well, yeah. well, unless there's anything that you wanted to squeeze in, I think this would be a good point to. Uh, uh, to to move on from OpenANX and just ask, a, I have a couple of questions that are a little bit general. Is there anything you wanted to interject there quickly about OpenANX, or do you think we can move on? Uh, only one last point, and this is probably one of the mo- things we're most happiest about with the token sale. Um, we saw um, barely any whales at all. Uh, we, we saw a, a lot of very small uh, individual contributions, and that's uh, you know as some of our pro- prominent. You know, figureheads in the industry say ICA is a great way to build up um, a community. We're so pleased to have so much support from such a small number, you know, small ticket-sized contributors. You couldn't have wanted a better sale in that regards. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Congratulations. Consumers, you know, it's it's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. So, so um, I just have a couple of questions here. Um, The thing is. This has been really, you know, I've talked to a lot of different people about it. Actually, I, I flew down to, uh, I was in Mexico City for a week this last month. And on the plane ride down there, I had the uh, uh, quite fortunate happening of sitting next to um, the CFO of a, a Fortune, you know, probably 10 company. <laughs> and um, during that process, we were talking a lot about blockchain. And one of the things that was really interesting to the conversation was discussing what it means for um, credit moving forward, as well as, you know, the the velocity of money. Mm. And I'm just curious to understand a little bit more about how you guys are viewing the like macro level impact of blockchain, um, particularly when it comes to credit, you know, fractional reserve banking and the velocity of money. Um, I'll, I'll have a swing at this one, Hugh, and then if I miss you, pick it up. <laughs> um, you know, I'm probably the newest on, on the call in terms of this space. You know, I've only been in uh, well, under a year, probably about half a year. Um, you know, I've, I've been vaguely, I lived in China for a long time. I was interested in privacy. That kind of grew into a little bit about crypto and VPNs and all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of where I, how I ended up in the crypto space. And um, for me, you know, in this type of role, uh, ANX, who runs ANX Pro, they have a, a bunch of other products to do with blockchain, uh, you know, blockchain solutions, all this sort of stuff. And, and what you find, there's a, a really wide sort of footprint. There's a lot of people talking about blockchain. There's a lot of media and all these sorts of things going uh, talking about it, but it's not very deep. You know, there's a lot of sort of hype. Walmart is doing something with logistics. Um, 
with blockchain with IBM and then people go oh they see the article but you know if you go out and talk to people in the market other than people specifically in this industry either from a crypto perspective or you know maybe Accenture's or the PWC's or the KPMG type consulting businesses or the IT if they're not from those three industries people don't really know what it is um, so what we find is talking to people in the market who are kind of you know quite often people know what blockchain vaguely is and they're looking for a solution to a problem, but then they sort of have to marry those two things together. And that's obviously an area where, where you can spend a bit of time to saying, well, maybe the solution to your problem, you know, maybe it's a customer loyalty solution or maybe it's like your, the points you get on your, your flight card, your credit card. Um, right. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, but I, I think it's got quite enormous, significant, fundamental impacts to, to global economies and, and trade. So, I, I, yeah, I get definitely what you're saying, Liam. But, um, you know, I, I, I got into the space more for philosophical reasons, actually. It was when the financial crisis had just happened. There was quantitative easing everywhere. There's the moral hazard of one neighbor paying for their neighbor's mortgage. So, this, this when reading about, this is, you know, reading, reading Satoshi's white paper and so on, this is actually what attracted me to the space initially. Mm. It was the fact that you've got a non-sovereign money. And and, um, and and if you believe that the born digital generation thinks differently to, to, the, to the older generation, um, and, and an example of this is TripAdvisor. I know, 20 years ago, like my parents, when they went to go on a trip somewhere, they would go to a government website and read the travel bulletins about that country. Do they need their shots? Is it safe? <laughs> now what people do is they go to TripAdvisor. And they won't even think about visit, visiting any authority website to read about news because... Uh, people trust their peers. Their, people, people trust netizens and their social relationships more than they trust central authorities. And so that's how it is for, you know, that, that's just accepted. You know, social medium and relationships have, have real value, um, just like TripAdvisor. And, and digital currencies are much the same, in fact. People, if they understand the mathematics behind, underneath a blockchain um, and, and they trust the ecosystem around it, it has real value. And um, slowly but surely, that, that that's getting to this, that's getting up to sovereign sizes of value. Right. And and so, yeah, it's um, it's it's all. I mean, it's very interesting. It obviously. I mean, it's funny to say it's obvious because I think to a lot of people it's not, but it seems obvious to me and probably to you that it's going to have a huge, profound impact. The thing that I just can't get my head around is I can't for the life of me figure out how crypto is going to impact fractional reserve banking. And I mean, you know, cause obviously, I mean the whole, you know, ever since, I mean, ever since, you know, the Europeans headed West and, you know, across the whole globe to conquer the you know whole world. I mean, at that point in time, it was all because of the credit boom, you know, basically people thinking that there was more gold in the vaults than there was, you know, and, and, and we've been, living in this system of of fractional reserve banking where you know there's a perpetual increase in the money supply and right. that it's all perception but but there's i think you know we see the ways that that goes bad like a 2008 you know 2009 crash but we also maybe are not maybe we're too quick to write off you know or yeah. not are not, are not recognize the the pros so i just think it's Great. very interesting and i'm not sure how it's going to translate with blockchain I agree. I guess 
with everything, that's a balance. You know, you should, it should never be too far on either side. The best answer is probably somewhere in the middle, a balance. And it needs to be able to move by itself as market conditions change. So debt is not evil. You know, debt, the, con- the concept that someone could lend their saved, stored wealth out to enterprising individuals to create wealth and, and, and do good and grow the economy, that's not a bad thing. So debt, debt by itself isn't necessarily bad. What's bad is any system that's too far on either extreme. So and and also blockchain doesn't prohibit debt. Just there's there's, there's no reason people can't issue debt um, when the underlying currency is a blockchain-based currency rather than a sovereign, you know, man, managed currency. But, but, see, but, but doesn't but but if you take well, that's the thing though, right? So if you just isolate it and you look at Bitcoin, for example, and you have a certain capped amount of supply. And, you know, the, the supply can't increase. So, yeah, of course, you know, I can have one Bitcoin and, and loan it out and, je- and obviously to someone else it's debt, but you're not creating additional supply out of thin air. And that right. is how the current system works, right? Right. It is, it is if you have a customer, custody relationship. So if, you, um, if, you're self, if you're holding a Bitcoin, yes, but if you send your Bitcoin somewhere as a loan to get interest and then that body that's holding your Bitcoin, then, then that takes your Bitcoin and loans it out. And that, per- then that person spends the money they've borrowed if they spend that within the same closed ecosystem. So, so let's imagine it's um, Acme Bank. You, you deposit your Bitcoin into Acme Bank. Acme Bank lends it to an Acme Bank customer. Acme Bank customer who's now got those Bitcoins, they buy it from someone who's also an Acme Bank, um, an Acme Bank customer, maybe a buyer house. And then Acme Bank can go and lend that Bitcoin out again. So it all comes down to, I think, the custody. If if there's some central party where the Bitcoins or the the, the, the digital right. currency is going, then you can have fractional still. I think, hmm. um, I think there's also uh, something to be said for, for thinking like uh, as a global sort of perspective. I, I was in China for a long time. And in China, if you put your money in the bank, um, you, you don't really earn interest. Like on a savings account, the interest is very, very low. The stock market is considered suspect. You know, essentially, there's a lot of deals in China where if you know a guy who knows a guy and he tells you there's something coming along that might be worth doing, you can probably make a lot of money. But in general, the market goes up outrageously and crashes very, very fast. Um, so people put their money in houses. You know, they know that they can buy their own house, but then they buy a second one. And that is essentially part cash. And when they have a family crisis or a health crisis or their son gets married, they sell that house. That is like their, that's their piggy bank. And essentially the reason it's very attractive to like blockchain Bitcoin in China is a lot of these guys sort of see it well. There's a, 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 there's a distributed ledger. It's written down, this is my transaction. Like it, it, there's a transparency in it, which is really, really right. valuable. So when you look at sort of small, like China is one market, and then obviously in Korea, there's a, a lot of regulation, but also the integration is very high. In, in Korea, if you trade on a blockchain exchange and then you get, a, you'll get, you get Bitcoin, your crypto exchange, sorry, and you, you, you get a Bitcoin, they, they will deposit the cash the same day in your bank. Like the banking relationships are so integrated. So I think that there's different reasons for an adoption and a move towards adoption in different markets. And I think there's sort of a coming together. You know, in the US, it's, it is probably quite a lot about credit and debt and quantitative easing and, and the release of money. And in Asia, it's probably about a little bit of a worry that the system is being gamed in a different direction. So there is something about having an incontrovertible record of, of what's happening with transactions. Right. Totally. So it's been really great. You guys have been fantastic guests. We're very excited about what you're working on. And uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here with the exception of one last question, which is 
what are you most excited about in terms of blockchain over the next one year? What, what's most exciting to you? I'll start Cricket. with. I was wondering whether to say it because I have some very good friends who are, who are VCs. But um, I, I think what we're seeing with token sales, there's going to be some good ones, there's going to be some bad ones. But what we are seeing is the disintermediation of some, sometimes very shark-like, um, you know, um, venture capital funds. So there's really a, a bit of a power to the people thing, I, I think, going on. And I, I think the market is educating itself, and they'll they will start to um, know how to, you know, how to how to trust these token sales, which are good, which are bad, and, and there'll be various best practices. But I just love the fact that we're just seeing a freeing up of like capital markets. Uh, it's it's fantastic. So much yeah. capital efficiency. It's uh, mm. really I get, incredible. I guess from my side, um, I, I'm I see in the next twelve months there's going to be a move. I mean, I'm obviously on the perception side. I'm a communications guy, and I think, um, you know. Wikipedia for a long time was considered like, oh, it's crap, right? People don't, uh, people just write stuff online. But in the last couple of years, research has shown that Wikipedia is actually just as reliable as the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Now that they've actually worked out a proper editorial process. Um, if you look at crowdfunding like Kickstarter and all that GoFundMe, you know, I backed a lot of projects and actually the failure rate is very low. And I think at the moment, crypto has a sort of a negative reputation in the mass market. And I think that's going to change, right? I think that the spike in Ethereum pricing, the general widespread slow adoption and people kind of understanding that what this is, I think that that's going to change in the next 12 months. I think, you know, the VC part is a very small part of that, but obviously there's a rising tide of interest. And I think it's kind of a very exciting time. Totally. We're, we're so early now, it's kind of just like need to work out the kinks. Like yeah, anything. Exactly. Yeah. It's very exciting. Well, Liam, Hugh, it's been just great having you on the show. Uh, just very excited for you you both and your entire team of 100 with OpenANX. Just huge congratulations to you and the team. And um, thanks for breaking the news first here on We Did a Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much, guys. Awesome, guys. That's great. Well, this well hopefully really we'll talk good. soon. Thanks for having us, guys. Cheers.